Let's begin in Acts chapter 6 this evening. Acts chapter 6. And we're going to begin with a pop quiz. What do you suppose is the fundamental responsibility of a deacon? How would you respond to that question? Some people might say that it's the primary responsibility is to serve the Lord's Supper. And while it is a responsibility, that certainly is not the primary responsibility. Other people might say that his primary responsibility is to serve as a board member. Um, other people might say that his primary responsibility is to organize church events. And as alarming as all of those answers, uh, or as alarming as it may be to us, none of these is the primary function of a deacon. Acts 6 is where the deacons were first established. And they are instituted as a result of a specific problem within the church that was growing at this time. And I believe the pattern and the demand ever since is for deacons to be a part of the organization of a church. In other words, you cannot have a church without deacons. You cannot have a biblically-based church without deacons. Acts 6 really helps answer this question that I began with. And without giving the answer, we'll just go right into our study of this passage and what we're trying to determine is what is the fundamental responsibility of the deacon. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 6. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The gospel is shown to prosper in spite of struggles that are going on outside the church. Those external struggles really begin in chapter 4, verse 32. Verse 32 we read, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. So up until... Acts 6, there was really no internal conflict. And you've got to remember, this is still where the church is being born. It's still uh, at its beginning stages. So up until Acts 6, there really were no internal conflicts. They were one of, of one accord, and everybody's needs were being met. In our, pro, 
In our passage, however, we see that there are problems in both areas. That now there is internal conflict and people's needs are not being met. And so Luke, wisely, instead of glossing over these problems and saying, hey, everything's good, the church is just running just fine, look at all these people we have, it's great. Everybody's coming to worship God. Instead of glossing over them, he shows how to correct these problems. And fundamentally, these problems are corrected through the deacons uh, taking on some responsibility. So, what, we, what I think the primary point of this passage is, is not fundamentally about deacons, but actually about the Word of God. And that is that the Word of God must be central to the local church. The Word of God must be central to the local church so that its power will not be suppressed. And this is really why the deacons were needed, so that the Word of God would not be suppressed. And I'll show you why that is. The problem in the church here arose as a result of at least two things. One was the growth of the church. In chapter 4, verse 4, we read that there are 5,000 men at the church of Jerusalem. And, and according to chapter 5, verse 14, it had been increasing. So imagine that, having a church of 5,000 and that it was increasing. Acts 2 had said that there were 3,000 that were added to the church in one single day. So we can guess that there are probably, it could be as many as 20,000 people in this church. And so you can imagine that what kind of problems may arise as a result of such a rapid growth. Now, that wasn't the only problem that, that arose in this church. The other problem we see in verse 1, and that is that the, there was a conflict between the Hellenistic Jews, that is the Greek-speaking Jews, and the Hebraic Jews, or the Palestinian Jews. Notice the problem in verse 1. Now at the time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint, arose, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the nature of the problem was that these widows within the church, specifically the Hellenistic, the Greek-speaking Jews, were being overlooked. Their needs were not being met. And as a result, the Hellenistic Jews felt like there was some, some sort of conflict, there was some sort of prejudice against them and their widows. They looked over at the Hebraic Jews and there didn't seem to be a problem with their widows. And, um, and this is in a society before Social Security or Medicare, pensions, all, those sorts of things. And so widows without means uh, from outside of themselves were unable to provide for themselves for the most part. And so there was a genuine need for these widows to have their needs met. And God certainly cares for widows. We know this from James chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 5. And so because of this, the apostles recognized the situation and they decided to do something about it. Um, the apostles show their primary responsibility in verse 2. Let's read that again together. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples, that is, the, the believers, and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. What was the concern on the part of the twelve, that is, the twelve apostles? They didn't want to, according to verse 2, neglect their responsibility of the word 
and as we'll see uh, later, of the of of prayer as well. They could not re- neglect that primary function that they had, and so as a result, they they decided to do something about it. And so really, the deacons ro- uh, rose out of uh, they had arisen out of the ashes of internal strife and out of needs being neglected. And so here's the solution that the apostles come up with in verses 3 through 6. They offer the solution in verses 3 and 4. It says, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So the plan was that the church was, and notice who he gives the responsibility to, He says the church as a whole, that is the congregation, you select seven men from among you. It wasn't, okay, we're going to select our men and then then you choose from among them. And And it also wasn't, we're going to select our men and this is going to be our deacon. No. It says you select people from among you who are doing service now, who would fulfill this office well. And then you choose. And later on, we'll see that, that it is, in verse 6, that it is the, the leaders of the church who actually lay their hands on these deacons and basically commission them to the Lord. And so the church was to select seven men from among them. And this is an important thing to understand in verse 3, that they were to select them from among the people of the church. This is not an outside hired service, Okay. We find the best people from outside and we subcontract them in. We'll pay for them so that they do a good job, oversee the affairs of the church. No. It was to find people who are already in the church. But not only that, verse 3 also tells us that they should be men of good reputation. We're going to look at qualifications of the deacon later, so we'll talk about this more in detail at that point. But what we need to understand there is that these men... These deacons were to be men of integrity. They were to be honest, um, upright men. Because you can imagine in a church of this size, they were going to be handling large sums of money. And being able to distribute that and potentially some food items to the widow, they would have to be above board, above reproach. But not only that, they were supposed to be men from among the people. They were supposed to be of good reputation. And then also they were supposed to be, verse 3, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. In other words, they were supposed to be controlled by the Spirit. Sometimes that that idea of full of the Spirit, we we don't really understand what that means. Aren't we all full of the Spirit? When we get saved, the Spirit comes in us and He lives within us and He's always in us. But actually, the idea there of being full of the Spirit is the same idea that's used in John chapter 11, verse 35. Actually, not it's uh, around that passage, but it's in John chapter 11 where Jesus, uh, we find out, it comes to the, to the tomb of Lazarus, and when he finds out that Lazarus is dead, he, it says that Jesus was full of grief. Okay, what does that mean? Does that mean that his cup got filled up, filled up with grief? It means he was controlled by grief. That is the driving force behind his sorrow. That's why the, I think the next verse says that Jesus wept. The driving force behind it was his grief. You see? So, so to be full of the Spirit simply means to be controlled by the Spirit. 
This is the type of men that were to be serving in the local church as deacons. They were to be men who are who were of the Holy Spirit, that they were controlled by the Holy Spirit, and that they were to be full of wisdom, that their thoughts, their motives, their actions were controlled by wisdom. And the purpose of them specifically at the beginning here at the at the beginning of their existence was at the end of verse three, whom we may put in charge of this task. Well what task are they trying to put them in charge of? Taking care of the widows that are being neglected. And the result of of selecting these men among them was that Verse 4, the leaders could focus on their primary responsibilities. See, so, so the deacons are actually serving the leaders in the sense that they're allowing the leaders to focus on their primary responsibility. Verse 4, but we, that is the, the apostles speaking, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, this doesn't mean that the pastor has, the only function that the pastor has is prayer and the ministry of the Word and that the deacons have all other responsibilities. That's not what it means. Because we know from other passages that, that the pastor is also the overseer, that he oversees all of the things that are going on in the church and is responsible to God for them. And also that, that in other parts of Acts we see that the pastor is taking part in administrative, we could call, responsibilities. And so this does not mean that we just simply separate them all. Okay, spiritual over on this side. Um, secular or or um, or uh, physical responsibilities over on this side, and the deacons take that, and the pastor take that. That's not what it is. But the point here is that the pastor, the the apostles here, but the pastors later were to focus on their fundamental responsibility of preaching and praying. And the problem would come if the the apostles gave up that responsibility because of the power of the Word and the necessity of the Word in the local church. If the, the, the pastor is pulled away from those two responsibilities primarily, then what can happen is the church will start to falter. The church will not be as strong as it was before spiritually. The church will not be growing spiritually as it should be. And so the pastor was supposed to give himself, the apostle here was supposed to give himself to the preaching of the Word, and to prayer. And that's what the deacons helped him in being able to do, not by, um, not by writing sermons for him or anything like that, but, but rather simply by taking some administrative tasks off of his plate so that he could respond to the most important thing of his job. And after the, the apostles came up with this idea, it, the congregation followed through on it in verses 5 and 6. And so the, we see in verse 5 the statement found approval with the whole congregation. They said, yes, this is a good idea. As, after they selected these seven men, verse 6 tells us that they brought them before the apostles and the apostles prayed for them. So the progression goes like this. The leaders said that it would not be desirable to be pulled away from the Word. So the church uh, takes on this responsibility for themselves to select among them deacons. And what we have now is that the church is following 
the, the leaders in the sense that the leaders come up with the idea and, and show how to implement it, and then the church follows behind and, and makes sure that it happens. Um, we don't have time to go into all the details about um, why seven, who are these men, and all that sort of thing. But, but what we need to understand uh, finally in verse 7 is that the Word of God kept on spreading. As a result of their commitment to the Word of God and its power and the power of prayer and the central focus that both of those had in specifically the pastor's responsibility, verse 7 says that the Word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So at least two things happened as a result of the Word's power. The disciples were increasing because the Word of God had free course, and also the priests even were being saved. Many of these priests were Sadducees who led the opposition against the apostles, but but this is probably referring to common priests, and it's not exactly clear what kind of priests these are, but... What we need to understand is that their obedience to the faith must have been a a remarkable demonstration of God's intention to change people's lives through the ministry of the Word, that even these priests who normally would have been opposed to the Gospel were being saved as a result of the Gospel. So, the fundamental responsibility of the deacon is not to... um, it's not to serve the Lord's Supper. It's not to uh, participate in meetings and find out what kind of activities we need to do. The fundamental responsibility is that, that the, deacons, the deacon needs to be serving the purposes of the church, and that is to make sure that people are growing. So whatever they can do in that regard, they should do. What are the qualifications for, for deacon? We'll come back to this, this idea and, and what this means uh, for our church. What are the qualifications for deacons? Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. So, we have this internal neglect and and conflict that's going on within the church. When the deacons come, they come to eliminate that division that's within the church. And they do that by serving the needs of the church. They promote internal unity through their actions. And they make sure that everyone's needs are being met. And so the ultimate goal of of the deacon, of the office of deacon, is to support the spiritual well-being of the church. And they do that primarily by allowing the pastor to study the Word of God and to pray. So if edifying and uniting the body of Christ is why is the reason why deacons were first instituted then the type of men that we need in those positions are men who are not causing conflict within the body okay that they are working to edify and unite the body so we could state it like this that deacons are not the ones who make all the noise with their actions or with their words they're more like the, the mufflers or the shock absorbers. Okay, when, when there's conflict that comes in, the deacons are ones there to suppress it. Not, 
not suppress sin and sweep it under the rug. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about conflict that, that should be taken care of. So what their primary purpose should be is to have the, the church's desire, the greatest desire in mind and to help others to meet that same goal. Now, many pastors today have left the emphasis of prayer and the ministry of the Word. They get so involved in trying to create all these programs and um, events in order to bring more people in that they give up their primary responsibility. They get so involved in administrative details that they have little time for intercession and studying of the Word. And yet, the very purpose for pastors, we'll look at this next week, is is that they are to be, Ephesians 4.12 says, equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. You see, the, the pastor's job is an equipping job. And so pastors who neglect their calling will, will send their congregations into decay and potentially allow them to wallow in spiritual infancy. And so we need to, as a church, make sure that the pastor, is it, whoever that will be, for as long as you live, is fundamentally concerned about the Word of God and prayer. Programs are no substitute for those two things. That primary responsibility. And we often set aside the Word of God and its centrality in our churches in America because we want to make things work. We, we just need this program that, that's working over at this church. We just need this other ministry so that people will like it better. But the pastor's job is to make the Word priority and the deacons help in that way by settling conflict, um, calming situations down like that, and, and being able to contribute to the needs of the saints. What are the qualifications for deacons? 1 Timothy 3. Read verse. You're there. I'm still talking. Um, I, I should have been turning. First Timothy chapter three verse eight. We'll read through verse thirteen. After Paul gives Timothy the qualifications for the pastor or the overseer in verses one through seven, he moves to the office of deacon in verse of the office of deacons, plural in verse eight. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men also must first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, what I'd like to do is read through that, that list of qualifications again. And this time I want you to notice how many of the qualifications for, deacon, for, for deacons, how many of them are unique to deacons within the church? In other words, is there anything in this list that's not required of you? Look at verse 8. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, 
but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Verse 12, deacons must be husbands of only one wife and a good man and good managers of their children in their own household. And then tells the benefits of being a deacon there in verse 13. So which qualifications are not required of, let's say, another man in the church? There are none. D.A. Carson says, what is remarkable about the qualifications for deacons is is that they are unremarkable. They are simply the same qualifications that all believers have on their own lives. So how could we how could ever someone be disqualified from being a deacon then? Well, the idea is they're not living up to these things. You see, deacons are recognized by the church as simply being faithful stewards of basic Christian principles. They help lead the church in that way. They don't have to have any administrative experience. That is not listed in here. They don't have to have the ability to teach. That doesn't exempt them, but they don't have to have those things. Do you see? They simply have to be a good, solid, stand-up Christian. Those are the qualifications. And so that's the type of people that we are looking for when it comes to the office of the deacons. Deacons are simply people, men, who are serious about being a Christian. Now, I want to look at each of these one by one because I think it's helpful for us to understand what Paul is talking about when he lists each one of these. So we'll go back through them a third time, and this time we'll we'll go slower. And this list and the, the description of these different items have been taken from Pastor Ken Brown uh, primarily, so I am indebted to him for his uh, his work in this. Verse 8, we see the first one, the deacons likewise must be men of dignity. This is an over, overarching qualification. It's regarding the, the, the man's overall lifestyle, that he in both conduct and in speech is characterized by, verse, three, verse 8, dignity. He's characterized by seriousness. He doesn't mess around with, with his position. He's not concerned about menial things when it comes to uh, the, the situation, the, the uh, condition of the church and its needs. He's fundamentally concerned about the church. And so his overall lifestyle, if we just took a snapshot of, of how he is and what he does, could we say that his lifestyle is marked by dignity? So that's kind of a summary statement. We move to the next one, and that is that he is not double-tongued. Or, I think the NIV puts it, sincere, that he is sincere. His quality of sincerity um, demonstrates honesty. That he is, yes, a a man of dignity, but he's also a man of sincerity or integrity in his communication. He's, He's truthful in his speech. He's not a person who is, that's the idea of double tongue, that he speaks out of both sides of his mouth. To one group he speaks this way, and to another group he speaks this way. You see, the office of the deacon is important because, because they are representing in many, many ways the church which represents Christ. And, uh, and so we should not take these things lightly. 
So he's to be a, a man of dignity, not double-tongued. Verse, the next one, verse 8, is that he is not addicted to much wine. This has, uh, I think, to do more with just drinking. Um, I think it has to do with a control of his appetite, that he is not given to drunkenness, as 1 Timothy 3, verse 3 says about the pastor. And he's not addicted to much wine. So from a larger biblical perspective, we could say that spiritual leaders, specifically deacons here, should never overindulge or overdrink. They should never cause others to sin by using their freedom in this way. And they should never really become addicted to anything. So it's I would take this as more than simply wine, but they are not addicted to to anything. I think uh, Paul uses specifically, and um, and perhaps there is more than, than that there. Qualification number four is found in verse eight also, and that is that he is not fond of sordid gain, or he does not pursue dishonest gain. The purpose for his service is not to to increase his pocketbook. His living comes by honest means. He's not an underhanded type person. He doesn't take what is not his. And so I think that's pretty self-explanatory, not fond of sordid gain. Qualification number five is found in verse nine, that he holds to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And we could could, uh, explain this one simply by saying that he knows and he believes and he consistently lives the truth of the Scripture. Okay, Similar to what we talked about with the first one there in verse 8, which is that he is a man of dignity. That he, that he here holds the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, that he knows and he believes and he lives what the Scriptures teach. That he lives and breathes the Scriptures. That is, that is his main goal in life. Qualification number 6 in verse 10. These men also must first be tested. They must first be tested. This means that before one is placed in the office of deacon, he he should have sort of a probationary period. He should be watched to see to, to see if he is genuine or if he's simply trying to pursue his own uh, position of power or or for some other um, wrong reason. So that he's not giving himself for selfless or selfish service, but rather that he's doing it for selfless purposes. So, so watch how he does in ministering in other areas of the church. Is, is he being, has he been given uh, an, 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 uh, a, a decent amount of time, an adequate amount of time? That's the word I was looking for. Qualification number seven is found in verse ten. That he is beyond reproach. This means that having observed his life and service in the church, that if ever there were a charge that were laid against him, okay, think of any heinous sin. Think of any uh, sin that would be kind of a shocking type thing. Would that kind of charge stick to that type of person? Would, would that charge stick? Like, yeah, I could see him doing that. Okay, not in the sense that he's depraved, like we all are, and anybody can fall into sin. Not in that, not, not in that sense. But, but because he is so beyond reproach in all that he does, 
If anyone tries to lay a charge against them, they're saying, no, not him. That would never come out of his mouth. Or that would never be something he would do. That's the idea of being above reproach or beyond reproach. Qualification number eight. He must be the husband of only one wife. Verse 12. Husband of only one wife. This refers to his moral character as it relates to women. Specifically here, Paul is saying that he should be married and devoted to his spouse. Yes. But literally, it would be uh, what Paul is saying is that he is a one-woman man. That he is devoted to his wife to the point where he, he, ha- he does not have a wandering eye for any other. He's not looking to, to, uh, to advance in his opportunity to have a relationship with another woman or he's not looking to put his wife away at some point and move on to a, a better one. He is a one-woman man and he's committed to her for life. That's a qualification of the deacon. Then number 9 is found in verse 12. That he is a good manager of his children and his own household. This refers to having a well-ordered family life. Okay, that that at, in his home, that including the behavior of his wife and his children, that that they are in many ways above reproach. That their behavior is adequate and and acceptable before God. That that they're able to handle the domestic affairs in their home, which includes, I think, um, not only how they act, but also finances and, and, and other responsibilities. So are they able to manage their own home well? So those are the qualifications that, that um, the Gospels or the, uh, the Epistles lay out for us. And I think we could couple those with what we saw in Acts chapter 6 with regard to being full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. See, these people are controlled by the Spirit. They're, they're men of dignity and, and above reproach. Those are the type of people that should be filling the office of the deacon. So what kind of application can we make for our church? How does this affect you? How does this affect me? Number one, I would say that we ought to all be deacons ourselves. The word deacon means servant. Okay, So that's what I mean by be a deacon yourself. Not for the purpose of getting a position or an office. I'm going to serve around the church so that people will recognize me and then someday I can work my way up to. That's not what I'm getting at. Okay, the idea of a servant is, is doing tasks that sometimes people don't see or never will see or never will find out about. You're, you're serving people sometimes in a menial way where the, the question that I have heard uh, before and, and is always convicting whenever I say it or, or think about it is how do you feel when someone treats you like a, a servant? I mean, are you willing to do whatever it takes even when someone treats you like a in a servile type of way? That, that you are are less than them in some cases. How How do you respond in those situations? Are you willing to serve even if it doesn't mean recognition. So in, in a sense, and like I said with regard to the, the qualifications 
In a sense, we're all required to be deacons. We're all required to fulfill these responsibilities. So this is not something that we say, okay, well, we'll leave that for them, and I don't have to do all those things. No, we all need to be deacons, and you understand what I'm saying there, servants in our church. Number two, I would say that we ought to pray for our deacons regularly. Pray for our deacons regularly. Do you even know your deacons? And they won't put you on the spot. Our deacons are Clayton and Mark. Pray for them regularly. Pray that God would help them to promote unity within the church and that they would help to, to, to help me pay attention to my primary responsibility of preaching the Word and praying. And pray that they would stay strong and maintain their credibility. Okay, not just like, okay, I'll act this way, Hopefully they just act good in front of other people. No, that they have a a quality, godly life wherever they go, in all aspects of life, so that they are not disqualified from the position of deacon. Pray for them regularly. How, How much would Satan love to attack these men and put a bad name on our church? Put a bad name on the name of Jesus Christ. Pray for these men. And thirdly, Think about other people who are specifically men, since we're talking about deacons, specifically men who are already deaconing. Think about other people who are already deaconing in the church. Because when it comes time to nominate deacons, we should be able to look around and and think and, and be able to pray about people who can fill those spots. We should say, yes, that person... Or, or that person is, is serving. That person is a man of dignity. He controls his own home well. And so I would encourage you that you have an opportunity every year. You get a letter in the mail in December. And you have an opportunity to nominate deacons if you're a member of this church. And, and um, we're not looking for a popularity contest. This is a serious office that requires serious thought and prayer. And so think about that as you have opportunity. Support these men who are trying to help promote unity within our church to avoid internal conflict. And pray for them that um, that they would maintain personal integrity in their own lives. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, I thank You for our church. Thank You for the structure of our church. Thank You for the men who have gone before us, who have established this church in godliness and holiness and have desired to walk worthy of our calling and have desired to honor Your Word by obeying it with regard to its structure. Thankful for the original men who um, worked hard to establish this church and uh, see it grow. For the men and women who over the years have contributed to the needs of the church, who have been servants without recognition, who have been desiring to see what is best happen as the Word of God is preached and, and as people's needs are being met and as conflict is being eliminated. We thank You for the people here who promote unity and who 
our people of dignity, thankful for our deacons, thankful for the time that they give of themselves to serve the needs of this church. Thank you for the support they give me in order to do what I need to do. Pray that you would help us to be unified in leadership and as a church so that we can accomplish your purpose. We pray that you'd help us to see the primary goal of our church to honor you by making disciples, teaching them all that you have commanded us. Pray that we would go about our business recognizing that and that each part of this body of believers would contribute to the needs of the the body. Not waiting for the deacons to set up a fund or to call out a need, but but help us to be doing things of our own initiative, seeking out needs within our church and, and meeting them on our own, even if no one else finds out about it. We pray that our motives would be right, not that you would... Um, that some kind of karma would take place on us because we've done good to someone else. Maybe good will come back to us or our bank account will grow because we've done this. No. But, but rather, that we would be willing to give whatever we have to other people and to this church specifically, the members of this church, so that we can see you glorified and that through the unity of this church that, that people would glorify you in heaven because of the love they see among us. Help us to be willing to give of ourselves as Jesus Christ gave Himself for us, the ultimate deacon, the one who gave Himself like no other. May we all be people of dignity and above reproach in everything that we do, that we be serious about our the disciplines of the Christian life, and that we would not be and we would not have as our primary goal to be recognized by other people, but instead to be recognized by You so that in that day, the final day, if we have served well, that we will receive uh, great praise from our Savior who died for us when He says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my Lord. Help us that to be our greatest goal and help us to support the deacons of this church and to regularly pray for them, uphold them, and to, to uh, help them to promote unity and, and uh, help them to help meet the needs of the church. Give us the grace to do it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.